All right, we'll grab your Bibles and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we're continuing today, uh, working through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And we are going to pick up right where we ended last week, um, because Paul is not quite done boasting in weakness. Right, so last week we saw that, that in this attempt to sort of draw the people of Corinth back from these false teachers who had come in, uh, Paul gives four contrasts between his ministry and the ministry of who he calls these deceitful workmen. Right, so he uses his own ministry as a reference point so that the people can see that what is in error. And the differences that he lays out are, first, that his reason for acting comes out of a divine jealousy rather than an earthly motivation. Second, that he came to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ free of charge uh, while these other leaders were looking for some sort of gain from the people. Third, Paul does not see his authority as tied to his strength as his opponents did. And fourth, Paul is unwilling to steal glory from God by making God's work about himself. Right? The other leaders would look at what God did and use it to sort of build their own credibility. And so by Paul's definition, uh, faithful ministry is about elevating God and helping people to see his sovereign goodness. And this is accomplished by minimizing ourselves so that God's work and strength can be seen for what it is. And so after all that, Paul finally got around to laying out his credentials, finally getting around to boasting, which he had kind of been teasing the entire time. And when he finally boasts, what he does is he boasts about his failures. Right? He gives us this list of all of the things that have happened to him, all of these terrible things, which is proof that Paul is weak. Right? He doesn't give this to us so that we look at it and go, wow, look at all the things that he survived through. No, this, this list is supposed to make us kind of go, man, what a pathetic loser. Right? Paul without God, is weak. And he wants his weakness to be seen. He says as much. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's his case for his ministry. That is his defense. Because when people compare the weak version of Paul that he has laid out to what he has actually accomplished... The difference between the two will be attributed to God. In other words, the gap between Paul's weakness and his successes means that God is present and working in Paul's life. This is the proof of his calling. If it was up to me, none of these great things would be happening. Because great things are happening, we know God is at work in my life. And so Paul's weakness both brings glory to God and makes God's strength visible. And so Paul boasts in his weakness because his weakness allows God's power to shine. Now today Paul is going to sort of take this argument one step further, making the claim that weakness is actually power. Right? Weakness isn't just something to be put up with. It's not just something that you can learn to accept in time with a lot of counseling. No, we access true power, he says, through weakness. Now, if that is true, there's a lot of implications for our life. But before we get to these, 
Let me try to convince you that it's actually true, right? Let's engage with Paul's premise that Christians should pursue weakness, understanding that weakness is the path to true power. Let's get into it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says this, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own half, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think of me, sorry, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. That is a confusing section, right? The first time I read this, I remember thinking like, First of all, what is he talking about? Secondly, he seemed to have sort of this train of thought going. He was comparing his weakness and God's strength. And now all of a sudden he brings in this, this other character, this, this person that he knows, this friend who had a vision of God 14 years ago. And it's like, why? Now when I read in a commentary the first time that what Paul is doing is he's actually talking about himself... And this is actually the general consensus. People go like, that's actually what he's doing. He's referring to himself here. Um, That made sense to me for the argument that he's making. Though I would say it brings up a different question, which is why is he talking about himself in the third person, kind kind of separating himself from the person that he's talking about? Right Now, it seems that Paul wants to separate himself from this man because he doesn't want to entangle himself in all of the different aspects of his personality to the argument that he is making. But his point in this is that he says he will boast about what this man experienced, but not the man himself. Which is to say, God's work in this man's life, what he saw was amazing. But the man who saw it was just a man, an, un- an unnamed man, a friend. So the visions and revelations that he saw should be recognized as powerful, worthy of boasting, but not the man who saw them. Now what Paul seems to be referring to here is, is the vision of Jesus that called him from being a hunter of Christians to a leader of Christians. Right now, that moment of confrontation is described to us in Acts chapter 9, right? Paul's traveling down the road, he's going to Damascus, and Jesus showed up and called him out from being an enemy to being a servant. Now, that excerpt that we get is very short. It doesn't tell us everything that Jesus revealed to Paul in that moment. And we see here it's because he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. Which makes sense of why Paul's life was turned around in such a sort of dramatic um, effect because he saw something, he experienced something, he witnessed God's glory in a way that changed him. Now Paul's experience on the road to Damascus was life-altering, but it was also very humbling. Right? He saw God in a moment of extreme glory. But what Paul is hinting in this entire section is that this humbling experience 
can very easily become a justification for pride. Which is to say the same power that puts you in your place eventually becomes something to boast in and ultimately part of your identity. This thing that God showed him and and, and did for him becomes a way to put yourself above others. And so Paul is very careful here to separate himself because he doesn't want to use his miraculous experience as a way to boast in himself. He separates himself so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now why Paul feels that the best way to separate himself from this is to speak in the third, I don't know. And again, it seems strange to me. But what we do know is he sees it as vitally important for the Corinthians to understand the threat of pride. What happens when you begin to kind of attach God's strength and power to yourself? And he goes into this in greater detail by describing how God has decided to keep him from becoming a conceited person. Here's what he says, verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Um, Now this is a very well-known section of scripture, right? The thorn in the flesh. Um, There are a lot of discussions and writings about sort of what this thorn in the flesh may be, what it is that Paul is kind of um, uh, dealing with. Uh, But most Bible scholars come to the conclusion that we can't know for sure, and it's actually left ambiguous and unknown on purpose. But it's obviously something that is making life difficult for him. As he states here, he has pleaded with God three times to to take it away, and God has not. Which is very interesting, I think. Because there's this idea in way too many Christian churches that God is concerned with us being healthy and happy. And if we pray for these things, God will give them to you. So it's a pretty amazing thing when we see the Apostle Paul goes to God in faith and says, please take this away from me that God refuses his prayer request. right? In faith, knowing that God is perfectly capable of taking away whatever it is that is tormenting him, Paul goes to God again and again, asking for relief. And God's answer is no. Now this should make it abundantly clear, if many other parts of the Bible don't, um, that God doesn't simply give us what we want because we ask for it. It also shows us that God's main concerns are not the same as ours. Right? We tend to be most concerned with comfort and security and power and happiness. And we think that if God cared about us, he would care about the same things. If he loved us, he would provide for us what we have already decided that we need. But what we see here is that God is willing to... God is willing to deny us these temporary desires for the sake of something greater. And in Paul's case, this greater concern is conceit. And you got to go, is that such a big deal? 
Well, Paul was specifically called by Jesus into ministry. He was given a clear mission and, and direction by the Spirit. He was given authority, um, and, and he got to experience God sort of working in the lives of people all over Asia Minor. He refers to all of this as the surpassing greatness of the revelations. But as he's already said, with this greatness comes a great temptation, the sin of pride. And it would be very easy for, for Paul, in the role that God has, has given him, to begin to sort of go, I'm the Apostle Paul. God chose me because I'm the Apostle Paul. Be very easy to boast in himself. He had all sorts of reasons in front of him. I'm sure people were throwing accolades at him. It would have been very easy. And so God graciously provides a thorn in the flesh specifically to keep Paul's pride at bay. So one of the things that stands out to me in this section is just how much God hates pride. Because God loves Paul. He wants what is best for him. And what God has decided is that it is better for Paul to suffer continuously than for Paul to become prideful. Pride is so bad that God leaves a thorn in his side, right? This nagging struggle to prevent Paul from becoming conceited. Now, of all the sins called out in the Bible, pride has the unique ability to destroy everything it touches. It's been called the root of all other sins, the first step towards the fall. Why is pride so bad? Well, it certainly breaks down our relationship with other people. It gives us a false view of ourselves. But the main problem with pride is in what it does to our relationship with God. What pride does is it convinces us that we are the source of good. Now, while it's true that God has sort of placed power within every person, he has given skills and abilities and gifts to human beings. Right? In his common grace, God has placed his fingerprint on all people. We also have to remind, remember that all of this has been designed into us. It has been given to us to bring glory to our creator and to be expressed in worship to him. But what pride does is it convinces us that, that rather than stewards of these gifts, rather than being conduits of God's goodness, that sort of we are good in ourselves. We are the producers of good. We are the source. And if we are the source of good, then we deserve to be honored for it. People should look at us and recognize how great we are. And as we take credit for the Creator's work, we rob Him of worship that belongs to Him, which is idolatry. Right? It's taking the glory and honor that belongs to God and giving it to something else, namely ourselves. Now, when you do this, you receive praise from other people and it feels really good. We like being treated like we are the source of good. We like being told that, that look at how wonderful you are. And so we put a whole bunch more energy into getting more of that. 
We invest more into this idolatry, and it's a vicious cycle. And living out this sort of self-glorifying life has another consequence. It allows us all to believe the delusion that we could be satisfied and complete on our own. In fulfillment then of Genesis chapter 3, pride allows us to believe that we are actually like God. That we can reason like him. That we can create like him. That we can have power and dominion in this world like him. And when we start to act this out, we hurt ourselves. We hurt others around us. The best example that I can think of to illustrate this is the kid who thinks he is Superman. I've used this illustration before, but having kids, it is just, every kid sort of goes through that, right? At some point, they think they have superpowers. Um, So they put the cape on. It's cute. You take a picture. You send it to all the family, right? It's really cute until they get up on the roof assuming they can fly, right? There's a point at which that delusion isn't funny anymore. Now imagine that rather than fly, their first act of being Superman was to try to stop a speeding bullet or a moving car. Now we're talking about more than a broken leg and a funny story. In the same way, the human belief that we are like God, fed by pride, leads us to act outside of our own human limitations. It leads us to believe that we have a power that we do not. And we end up destroying individuals and communities as a result. It's a quiet destruction, but it's a destruction. We can look at our communities and see it. We can look at how many people are depressed and anxious and we can see it. But God, in his great sovereign love, disciplines his children. He disciplines his children to keep them from the destruction of their prideful delusion. God allows us to go through pain and suffering in order to draw us closer to himself. Now, this is not in some sort of selfish, I want you for myself, and so I'm going to do whatever I can to have you. God does this for us because he knows that if he allows our delusions to go on unimpeded, we will suffer far worse. And so like the parent who is going to go and take away the Superman cape, even though they know their child is going to throw a temper tantrum and yell at them and hate them for five to ten minutes, God knows what is best for us in the long run. And he keeps us from harm's way by doing whatever is necessary to lift this prideful destruction out of his children's lives. He knows what we do not. The true power comes not from exercising our limited strength apart from him, but by multiplying our power in union with him. And so God responds. We get, we get God's words here, his response to Paul, Paul's request to remove the thorn. This is what he says in verse 9. He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So in God's response, we have two things, and I think if you grasp the first one, you'll understand the second. The first thing he says is, my grace is sufficient for you. Sufficient in what way? In every way. What God is saying here is that his grace towards his creation is and has always been all that we need. 
If we have him, we are complete. If we do not, no amount of getting things and doing things is ever going to make us enough. So the question is, how do we get this grace? How do we get this thing that we so desperately need? Well, Ephesians 1 and 2 are probably the fullest description of God's grace and how it functions in this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so grace is this undeserved favor that God pours out on his people. It tells us here, for the sake of a people entirely dead to sin, Jesus comes into this world and he gives his life to take on the punishment of sin. To put it to death so that his people can be made alive. He transfers his righteousness to us and gives us the promise of eternal life. And it tells us here, in that eternal life, he will reveal to us all the fullness of his love and goodness. We have eternity to ponder and figure out how deep that grace really goes. But grace is God doing the work necessary to unite a sinful people to himself. And this grace is given to us as a gift freely. And God operates salvation in this way. So that like we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we cannot use even our salvation as a reason for pride. Jesus completes salvation on the cross. We receive the benefits of his work for no other reason than because he is good and he loves us. That is grace. But Ephesians 2 shows us that God's grace keeps giving to us. In verse 10 it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. In this, Paul is saying, grace is not just going to be there for you at the end, in the future. God's grace is the power by which we navigate this world right now. This assurance of salvation shows us our absolute dependence on God. And it also gives us access to him in this life. Which brings us to the sort of second thing that Paul, sorry, that God said to Paul in chapter 12, verse 10. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So certainly the gospel itself, right? Jesus Christ coming, humbling himself, going to the cross, dying, shows us power and weakness. But sometimes we go, what does it mean for us to follow that example? Right? What does it mean for us to live that out? How is God's power made perfect in weakness in our own lives? Well, I'd say first, one of the manifestations of this we've already looked at is, is through witness. God doing powerful things through weak people shows his glory. 
But what God is saying to Paul here is actually far more personal. God is telling Paul here that there is a power available to him through weakness. A strength that can only be accessed through humility. Because we were created to be in unison with God. We see this in the creation account. But let's make sure we understand what that relationship actually looks like. Because our unison with God is not equal. Our relationship in creation is one of complete dependence. Adam and Eve were entirely dependent on God providing for them. Now when we sever that relationship, we take what we have been gifted and we try to use it apart from God for our own glory. And as we've said, this is idolatry, but, but, but along with that, it cuts us off from the benefit of being in relationship with God. It cuts us off from the power that we are offered. Here's a couple of, of different pieces of what that power looks like. Right? One is belonging. We don't have to prove ourselves because we know acceptance is not based on our performance which cuts out so many of the struggles that we have in this life with identity and self-worth. We gain purpose, right? We have, a, we have workmanship. We were created to work for God, and we are now working towards the completion of his plan. What does that mean? It means we never have to worry about being on the wrong side of history because every single thing that we do in obedience to God is effective. The Bible tells us our labor is never in vain. We don't have to second guess and question and worry. Which leads to peace. We don't have to have life figured out. You don't have to have the answers to everything. You don't have to have an opinion on everything. Right? Do not respond on Twitter. You don't have to have an opinion on everything. Why? Because we know that we're limited. When we are actually honest about our weakness, all of a sudden we don't have to worry about somehow having to know everything. And in that, every problem doesn't overwhelm us because we know that God is in control and he will make all things new. Now, ultimately, I could keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going on the benefits of what it means to be in relationship with God. But, but we were created to exist in his order, in unison with the creator, And every part of our life ultimately benefits from being in this relationship with him. Even some of the things that we can't rationalize or make sense of. And so in grace, through the work of Jesus, we're invited back into this relationship and we now get to experience all the benefits and the power of being his. But here's the catch. In order to embrace this power, we have to admit that we're broken. We have to be honest about our weakness. Because it's only by acknowledging our weakness that this strength becomes available. It's like this. If you break your leg, by the way, I don't know why I mentioned breaking the legs more than once in this sermon, but yeah, whatever. But if you break your leg, there's something that needs to heal there. And you can walk around pretending that you're fine. You can hobble around, but what you're going to do is you're going to prevent the healing from actually happening. And if someone offers you a crutch, and you go, no, 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 I can, hmm, 
I'll tough it out. I learned to walk it off as a young man. You know what? You can do that. But ultimately, that crutch and the cast and whatever your doctor says is going to lead to, to, to the healing that you need. Now, of course, the grace of God is much more than a crutch. Probably a better analogy to say if you broke both legs, grace is like the wheelchair. But even then, it's not really complete. If we fight against the idea that we're weak, we will not accept the power that grace offers to us. If we keep pridefully believing that we can do without God, guess what? He'll let you keep doing it without him. And we will be far less powerful for it. But a humility that embraces weakness allows us to rely on the grace that has been gifted to us. It allows us to experience all of those benefits that come with being God's. And so God's promise is that we will find power by rejecting the empty promises of pride. We will learn to depend on the power then that God offers. But in order to do that, we actually need to change how we think about pain and suffering and struggling and weakness. And so Paul ends here by giving us guidance on this. Starting in the second half of verse 9, he says this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul begins here by sort of repeating what he said at the end of chapter 11, that he's going to boast in his weakness. But here he adds why. He says, I'm going to do that so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Which again means that the power of Christ resting on us is dependent on us acknowledging our weakness. And for Paul, the recognition of what we get, this grace of God makes the acknowledgement of weakness almost not enough. Right? We acknowledge something that is simply there, that we can't do anything about. Acknowledgement is just sort of putting up with it. But what Paul says is that weakness, as the means to power, is worth celebrating. It's worth boasting about. For Paul, all of the things that remind him of his limited ability and his need for God are wonderful acts from a sovereign God to pull him in closer. And so in this, weakness goes from something to avoid or be defended against to an example and a picture of how God is applying his power to our lives. Now with this, it's not just weakness that loses its power, but all of the struggles and suffering in this world. All of it gets rewritten through God working to shape his people. This doesn't mean we don't feel any pain. But Christians are assured that every difficult thing we go through will be used by God to sanctify us. And in the end, to strengthen us through dependence. Paul says, For the sake of Christ, I am content then with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Now, I don't know about you, but I can acknowledge that far better than I can live that out. Right? I read sections like that, and I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, 
God's working, hardships. Then hardships hit me, and I'm like... (laughs) Right now, there's a lot of hardships around us. A lot of you are going through hardships more so than you have in your life up to this point. The truth is, none of us want to suffer and go through difficult things. None of us. Yet Christians have been given a promise in the difficult. We have been promised that our sovereign God, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who cares for us, who knows what we need better than we do, is working all of these things together, even when the answers to our prayers are no. That's what this section is about. When God says no, and you have to suffer and struggle through things, it does not mean he is not there. It actually means the opposite. Something is happening in your life where God is growing you. And so when the hard times come, our response should not be despair or overwhelming fear or even the noble desire to fix everything. That's my own personal one, right? Well, as long as I'm doing good things and trying to fix it, it's okay, right? Not if it's all prideful. Where we need to start is we need to start by resting in him. By remembering who God is and who we are. And we must acknowledge that all of our life, even the parts we thought we were in control of along the way, is dependent on God. We must remember that his ultimate plan is to draw his people to himself through the process of humble dependence. And he will use struggle to get us there. Only by confronting this will will we be willing to let down our guard. Right, The walls that we have built out of fear. Only then will we allow our weaknesses to be seen. It's only when we realize that our delusions of our own power and control and strength are what are keeping us from the blessings of God that we will be willing to declare with Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. So as you come forward for communion today, first come humbly. Recognize that this grace that we receive is given to us. Not because of any good within us, but because of our great and loving God. And as you receive this grace from him, ask him to reveal to you the areas in your life where you are still boasting in your own strength. Where you're taking credit for God's good work in you. Where you still believe that if you work hard enough, you can get yourself out of this. Use this time to thank him for all that he is doing and pray that his power be manifested in your weakness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, just for, for all that this takes away from us in a good way. God, when we try to control things, it becomes more and more obvious. It becomes more and more evident that we can't make things how they should be. 
that there are things in this life that are just bad. No matter how much we try to spin it or, or make it better. And yet we thank you for the assurance that, that even those things are not outside of your control. That there is nothing that happens to us, there's nothing that happens in this life that will not be turned into good. God, I pray that you would help us to really believe that. To really trust that. So that we can be strengthened against all of the different things that this life is going to throw at us. We want to be done suffering. We want to be done struggling. God, help us to see that the only way there is for us to depend on you. And we just thank you again for giving us that option. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.